Good morning, everyone. We're continuing our journey through John 18, and things are getting darker for our Lord Jesus. He's just been betrayed by uh, one of his best friends, one of the 12. He's been denied by someone that was in his inner circle, Peter. He's been spat on, he's been kicked, he's been sworn at. And now in this particular passage, John 18, 28 to 40, he stands before the political power of the age. And the question I guess I want to ask as we lead into this message is, how will truth triumph? Because I don't know if you realise it, but the world, and by the world I mean culture, accepted behaviours, accepted norms, the standards, they all have systems of truth. Everybody, you, you ask anyone, they all like to think they're seeking truth in some way. It's actually an honourable thing, even today with what you might think is a lot of duplicity and a lot of lies and a lot of deceit, a lot of spin. And yet people like to still pride themselves on being truth seekers. You'd, you'd like to have that known of you, wouldn't you, as a characteristic? That guy, that lady, they, they're seeking truth. Now, when we seek truth, what we actually do is we have within our minds a matrix of thoughts, of values, of what's acceptable and what's not. And there's a whole bunch of different things that can feed into those. There's the personal side, you know, relationships might feed into that uh, assessment of truth in some way, peer group pressure and so forth. Just ideology, our religious beliefs. But what we actually see here is the grand systems of truth that are brought to bear by the world. So we see political truth, the political system which seeks to have its own definition, its own concept of truth. There's a religious system. There's a judicial system, a legal system that's at play here. All these systems designed to get to truth. The legal system designed to find out whether or not someone is truly guilty, to establish the facts. There's even what I'll go so far as to say a democratic system, i.e. people power. Crowdfunding, petition.org, people are having their say. You know, we, are, uh, we ourselves, I guess we spend a lot of time researching the big truth questions. It's funny because, you know, if we're going to buy a house, we do a lot of research, don't we? You know, just go and buy the first one you see that kind of looks nice. You research the market, you're seeking truth. A car, you want to find out whether you're getting value for money. You seek truth. You spend a lot of time seeking truth, seeking reality about whether that car is best for you. You know, if you're going to get married or you're in a relationship for a long time, no doubt you'll have those questions. Well, can I spend the rest of my life with this person? Is it all going to turn to worms? Divorce it happens. It's so prevalent. Really, what you're asking is, will, will truth triumph? Am I behaving in a way that is synchronized with reality? And then we look at this passage, you see all the world's best. You see the world's best politicians, the world's best um, religious priests, the judicial system, the democratic system, the crowdfunding, the ideology. You see, you see the world's best for that day. And if you look around our own world, our own sort of uh, postmodern culture, you also see the world's best scientific, political, judicial. You see what, what the, the best that they can bring in terms of seeking truth. And you ask any one of those people and they'll say, yeah, it's not perfect, but we're seeking truth. And surely these systems will not fail us. Surely truth will triumph. 
truth will triumph. Let's just read this passage together. It's John 18, 28 to 40. Like I said, we're well and truly into the, what's called the passion account, which is Jesus' trial, his suffering, the crucifixion. And uh, by Easter Sunday, we will be to the resurrection. So this is all the lead up to Easter. Easter's early this year. I don't know if you realize that. It's at the end of March. It's only actually four Sundays away, would you believe? And so we're well and truly into what is Jesus' darkest hour, the world's darkest hour, and it all looks grim. And the question is, will truth triumph? Will truth uphold Jesus' character? Because he's flawless. He's done nothing wrong. Will truth triumph with the world's systems of truth-seeking, putting him on trial? From verse 28, the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. They Ben so well covered the account before Caiaphas, Peter's denial. I encourage you to go and look at that online. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. Verse 32, this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. He said it several times throughout the gospel accounts that the Son of Man must die, be crucified, handed over to the Gentiles by the Jewish authorities. And this is now happening. 33, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people, your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I just want to say that again. Everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. Everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back at him, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. And from the other gospel accounts, we find out he was a murderer. He was probably a thief as well. He was the worst of the worst. Let's pray. Father, we want to seek truth. But between us and truth are various types of lenses that we wear. We do not see you as we should. I pray that today we would. In Jesus' name, amen. So will truth triumph? Or another way to put it is how will truth triumph? How will truth triumph? How will the truth of Jesus triumph, the truth of who he is, the truth of what he's done? How will it triumph in the face of these world political systems, these world judicial systems, these world religious systems? I mean, surely they'll establish the facts, won't they? Won't they establish reality? 
establish and acquit an innocent man. I mean, Jesus, what has he done? Like, help me out. What's he done in the last 18 chapters of John? Bit of revision. Bob, what's something? Yeah, anything. Because healed. Yeah, he's talked about being the son of God. I am. We'll talk about that. He's fed a lot of people. I like that one. He's walked on water. Why did, he, why did he walk on water? The disciples were in trouble. Got out to them. Yep. Sorry, what was that, Kong? Yeah, there's been glory. That's not so much covered in John, but in the other gospel accounts. He withstood temptation in the garden. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. He raised the dead. He like, got angry about the temple kind of commercialism that was going on. What you see over and over again in Jesus is nothing but noble heroics. Nothing but self-serving, sorry, self, other-serving, we're self-serving, other-serving heroics. He just serves like he teaches, he loves over and over again. And this love isn't a kind of feel-good kind of love. It's tangible, it's real, you can see it. Like I said before, how would you know, take away all the words, take away all the feelings, how do you know someone loves you? Look at what they're doing. Listen to what they're doing. Listen to what Jesus does. And you see an awesome man. You see a beautiful man. You see God in the flesh. So surely the systems of truth will establish reality, establish facts. Let's start with religious truth. In verse 28, the Jews. So whenever John talks about the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish authorities that are generally in opposition to Jesus. The Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. As we were told last week, Caiaphas was uh, the high priest at that time. He is the embodiment of a religious system at least 1,500 years old, Judaism. He is supposed to be the best of the best. He is supposed to know more about the law than any other person. He is the only one that can go in and make the sacrifice every year in the Holy of Holies. Like, he is the one that is supposed to be the law embodied. Will Caiaphas get it right? Will Caiaphas recognize truth? He has studied the scriptures his whole life. He would know the scriptures better than anyone here, I can guarantee it. Better than modern scholars. He doesn't have to do heaps of exegesis to get the historical context. He's living it. He knows it. Will he... Will he get to truth? Caiaphas, will you, try, will you see truth triumph? What's the, what's the answer? No. He takes Jesus, who at least previously we know has written the law, if we believe that all the scriptures are inspired, and he condemns him. He condemns him. Well, Caiaphas might have been corrupt. Now, remember, Caiaphas is like the Pope back then. Can you imagine the Pope putting someone to death illegally? That's the kind of weight that's happening here. It's like all the way through John, there's been these altercations between Jesus and the priestly system, between the religious system, and it just gets worse and worse. It gets ratcheted up until eventually they're putting him on trial. But what about the code? Because it's just the, the written code. It's just black and white, right? It's just print on the page. Like surely, surely the precious words on the page 
will see Jesus justified. So if you look at the second part of 28, it says, by now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So here is the law. Here is the code. And there's, there's hundreds of them. There's over 600. And there was this idea about keeping yourself clean. And so what the Jewish authorities and the Jewish religious figures did was they added stuff. And so what they've done here is they've said, listen, we can't associate with Gentiles when the Passover is going on. However, so we're not going to go into their house, but if it's open, open courtyard, we can go in there. That's okay. So what they're doing is they're going, let's be careful about our uncleanness. And John has set this up in an ironic kind of way. We all see, don't we? We all see what's going on here. Like the Jews' hypocrisy is in kind of stark contrast to Jesus' innocence. We see it now, but it wasn't seen then. As the Jews point out later on in verse 7 there, we have a law and according to that law, he, Jesus, must die because he claimed to be the son of God. They're absolutely right. There is a law that talks about that. But what's the problem with it? What's the problem with condemning Jesus because he said he was the son of God? He actually is. (laughs) So if they'd have established that, if they'd have done what the law told them to do, to investigate thoroughly, what would you have done? Like, say you want to establish if someone is the son of God. You're there now, guys. You're one of the priests. And you're, you're, maybe you're someone who's having a few doubts. Maybe you're like Nicodemus. We'll find out about him later uh, in a few weeks. Maybe you're having a few doubts. So someone has come to you and he says he's the son of God. What would you do? Yeah, you go and get witnesses. And you start hearing all these stories about miracles. I'm going to go and talk to Lazarus. And he says, yep. Oh, I was dead for three days, man. Go and talk to my rallies. Or you could go and talk to the blind man. Remember the blind man a few chapters back? Blind for, 30, uh, sorry, blind for most of his life. Or the crippled man. You would talk to any of them. And you would just get account after account after account of supernatural power. And you would have to do something with that. But you don't see any sense of that. All you see in the other gospel accounts is them bringing witnesses, two or three witnesses, because that's what the law said. And you know what happens with the two or three witnesses? Do you remember from the other gospel accounts? They all contradict each other, but their testimony is still accepted. We have a law, the Jews say in verse 7, and according to that law, he must die. Well, what else does the law say? I mean, surely truth will triumph in this written code. It says you shall not murder. So if you condemn a person illegally, what is that? To to death? Murder. If you tell lies, what commandment have you broken? Do not bear false testimony. If you're in charge of a judicial system and someone tells you lies and you know someone's lying, because let's say Tim says the sky is blue today and I say the sky is black today and all you hear is those two accounts, one of us is lying. One of us is wrong. But if you then just accept it anyway, no, he's still guilty. So some are saying Jesus said this, some are saying Jesus said other thing. It's just all confusing. And yet you're the guy in charge and you go, oh, the law says two or three witnesses. There's my two or three witnesses. You are just as bad as them. So now the people that are supposed to be in charge of the written code, supposed to know it the best, shall not murder, they're going to murder. Shall not bear false witness, they're bearing and accepting false witness. Will the written law bring the triumph of truth? No, it, it doesn't. 
Because who is in charge of interpreting the written law? Men, corrupt men. They ignore it, they distort it, they embellish it, and ultimately it has no truth-bringing power when it really counts when before them is the Son of God, is God. I just find that so amazing. What about political truth in the form of Pilate? Pilate is the governor of that region. He has ultimate power. He has Caesar's authority and power. He can save Jesus or he can put Jesus to death. That, anyone seen that before? Anyone know what it is? It's called the Pilate Stone. It was discovered in 1961 in one of the Caesareas. There's a few different towns called that down on the coast. And it just simply, uh, it's, it has Pontius Pilate on it and it's dated to the same time. Showing it's one of the uh, extra biblical uh, evidences that Pontius Pilate was around at that time. I just thought that was kind of pretty cool. There's a rock, 2,000 years old, or slightly less than 2,000 years old, bearing Pilate's signature, essentially. It's not really a signature, but you know what I mean. So the Jews have led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Pilate comes out in verse 29 and he says, what charges you bringing against this man? He's doing exactly the right thing. He wants to know what is going on. I need to establish the facts. And they say straight away, they're already preempting things. If he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now he's going to say that a few more times. You've got this very dramatic scene where he's going into Jesus to talk to him to try and establish the facts. Then he goes out to the crowd. He, he's kind of right on the edge. He's at a crossroads. He's like, I know this guy is innocent of at least breaking Roman law. There's no reason to condemn him. But every time the crowd gets angrier and he's teetering. We know from other gospel accounts, his wife has a nightmare. He says, leave, leave that man alone. Don't have anything to do with him. She's scared. And so Pilate's like wavering. He is the political power. And then in verse 31, he says, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate has the power to save Jesus. Does he? There's only one possible charge that they could make stick. And that is that Jesus has said he is a king. If he's a king, well, there can't be two kings. So therefore, he's in... Um, competition for Caesar and that's what the Jews seize on that's ultimately what they seize on so well if you really are a friend of Caesar Pilate then you will condemn this guy because he's saying he's a king and I love verse 36 because Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking and he preempts it and he says my kingdom is not of this world if it were my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews it's such a brilliant answer if you think about it it's such a brilliant way of preempting um, a false accusation because if you think about it we know that Jesus' servants were going to fight, weren't they? And Jesus put a stop to it. But we know that Jesus is the real king. We know because we've got the benefit of hindsight that he is the ultimate redeemer, the resurrector. He, like, there is a kingdom coming, make no mistake. And when Jesus returns, what we talked about yesterday, it'll be in a white charger. He'll be a warrior king. He's coming back with power. In this first encounter with earthly powers, he comes as a suffering Messiah, a suffering saviour. 
And so whilst it's true that Jesus is a king, he at this stage is no threat to Caesar. But do you know who Caesar bends the knee to now? Jesus. <laughs> do you know who Pilate bends the knee to now? Jesus. Some people think Pilate may well have uh, become a Christian. In fact, one of the, I think it's the Ethiopian or one of the Eastern Orthodox churches venerate him as a saint. I don't know about that. The scripture doesn't really tell us. He certainly had his doubts. But I can tell you, without a doubt, he now bends the knee to the Lord Jesus because Jesus is king. But for now, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. He's just defused any accusation and he is honest, authentic, true. Pilate, will truth triumph? If you look further down, um, we'll go on to this next week. Verse 4 of chapter 19, he comes out again to the Jews. Pilate comes out again to the Jews. He said, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. That's based on what we just explained there. He can't pin anything on Jesus. He then tries to set him free. His wife tells him to do the same. But ultimately, remember what he does in a symbolic gesture? He gets a washing basin in front of the crowd and he washes his hands. This is in the other gospel accounts. And he says, my, his blood, this man's blood is not on my hands. And do you remember what the crowd says? Let, yep, let his blood be on us and our children. You know, this, this crowd with its political system, its um, religious system, which have failed to bring truth, are not only now condemning themselves, but if they had had their way, condemning their children, aren't you glad that God is gracious and that any generational condemnation was put onto his son for those that would bend the knee to the Lord? And then in verse 16 of chapter 19, Pilate hands him over to be crucified. The political power of the day, the truth-seeking system, subverts its own system. It's unjust. It illegally condemns an innocent man to die, and he knows it. Pilate knows it. And at the same time, verse 40, do you see what he does? It's, like, it's just like he's just ratcheting up his own condemnation. The, the, he ratchets up this kind of spotlight that's being put on the deficiencies of this truth system. He releases a murderer. He actually releases the guy that is a threat to Caesar's power. Political truth fails. Some might say, if only we had science back then, if we had scientific methods. Science is now seen as a truth system, and I wish I had more time to go into this. It's awesome. I love my Amarok, even though I knocked the mirror off it yesterday, but anyway. Um, you know, it's well engineered. Germans really know how to build diesel engines. You know, that's, that's good science. But do you know the 20th century was the bloodiest century ever. It was the most scientific century ever, most scientific advances. No one will dispute that. And yet it was the bloodiest century. We killed more people in the 20th century than we have killed ever because of our science. The death camps, they weren't put together by um, arrogant German Nazis like you see on the movies and so forth. I'm sure they were there. They were put together by scientists. Sophisticated ways of killing people, lots of people at one time. They had to put their best brains to that job they had to get the best science happening for that job. And so you might say, okay, well, science would surely bring truth. I mean, just go and read up about scientism. 
about the worldview of science, which then interprets, because scientists are people too, and their cold, hard facts are there, but they interpret them in different ways. I love the way that, you know, in Christianity, there's so many Christian thinkers, Christian scientists who are truth seekers, and they apply a Christian worldview without making themselves look like idiots. They're PhDs, they're researchers. Some of the greatest minds in history have been scientists. But science in and of itself will not triumph in terms of ultimate truth and truth-seeking. Then there might be democratic truth. When the written religious code fails, when the high priest fails, when the political system fails, people power. Isn't that what most of our kind of revolutionary movies are about nowadays? It's probably not a big surprise that the political system, the religious system has failed, but now it's people power. You know, Americans love this. We love our American brothers and sisters, hey? The revolution. We like to talk about it as well. We watched the Light Horseman yesterday. Good old kind of Aussies, uh, Aussie soldiers. We like to think of ourselves as a little bit rebellious in Australian society. That's all about democratic truth, democratic power. You can go online and start a petition right now. The crowd had every reason to sign a change.org petition to acquit Jesus because they all knew as well that Jesus had loved, served, taught his whole life, been rejected and just kept doing it, never overreacted. Jesus healed, he served, he loved, he taught. And it's interesting because if you look at verse 33, Pilate comes in, he says, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says it so brilliantly, is this your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Now you have to understand in Hebrew thinking, in Hebrew rhetoric, in, in terms of ways of arguing, they often ask a question, not necessarily expecting an answer, but just to bring out a point. Like if you came to me and said, oh yeah, all these people are saying stuff about, or sorry, if you came to me and said, you are, I don't know, you are arrogant. And I knew you'd been talking to a whole bunch of people that didn't really know me. And I said, is that your idea? Or did you come up, with that, come, up that, come up with that yourself? It's a way of getting you thinking. It's a way of going, hang on, where am I getting my truth from? And Jesus does it so brilliantly because he pegs Pilate. What is ultimately driving Pilate here? The fear of what the crowd might do. And then the fear of what if Caesar hears about it, he's responsible. Pilate is being driven along like so many politicians by popular sentiment. And that's the trouble. The democratic system is awesome. People power is awesome. But what if all the people want to kill babies at seven or eight months in term? Just prior to term. And they all vote for it. And then what about in about 30 or 40 years where you're not actually seen as useful to society anymore? So at about age 70, someone determines that because the crowd wanted it, the democratic system wanted it, it got voted in, and so you're euthanized, taken off to a quiet place. Like, I know that's extreme, but think about it. If there's enough democratic power, then those kinds of things can happen. Just like if you were Jewish, or you were homosexual, in World War II, in Germany, people power, yeah, we'll, we'll bring Hitler into power. We love him, we love the way he speaks. All the people had to do was rise up against Hitler and all that would have stopped, but they never did. People power. People power is awesome, but it also is insufficient when it comes to ultimate truth. You know what they eventually say? People power. 
This is what, it, what they say. Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children. So the people power of the day subverts its own values. It unjustly, illegally condemns an innocent man to die and demands the release of a guilty man. Just recently, a popular female artist released a song, and I'm not going to say who it is because I don't like advertising even to 40 people here or whatever, but, um, and I wouldn't want you to go and look at it. It's essentially about sex and then going to a particular restaurant afterwards. And it's weird lyrics. Um, did you know that sales at that restaurant spiked 33% after that song was released in America? So people power is extraordinarily strong in our own democratic nation, in our own popular culture, but it also can be so wrong. Will truth triumph? Well, the Jews were driven by jealousy, which caused hardness. It made them see their truth in a particular way, inverted commas truth. Pilate was driven along by popularity, by fear. The people were driven along by peer group pressure, probably fear as well. They were all truth seekers and they were all distorting the truth, ignoring the truth, embellishing the truth, rejecting the truth. The world has all these truth systems and they all failed. And do you see the irony? This, is, this, is, this whole passage this is infused, it's dripping with irony. What did Jesus say he was? I am the way, the truth. Did he say, I know the truth? No, he said, I am the truth. So the irony is that the one who is, I am, I am the truth, God who is truth, is standing before all these world systems. The world systems can, in a sense, in a real sense, look into the eyes of truth and they get it so wrong. The religious truth finds him guilty. Political truth finds him guilty. People truth, people power, guilty, Jesus, guilty. They get it so wrong. And this, if nothing else, should make us go, you know, the way we see things, the way we understand them, the way we get truth. Like we really just, we really, guys, we just really need to, we really need to pray. Like my brothers and sisters, we really need to be truth seekers on our knees. You know, when you look for truth, do you go straight to the internet? Sometimes that's good, like Wikipedia and so forth. Or do you go to your knees and go, Lord, I really want to know what's going on here. When we look at some of these things, things on Facebook about Islam, and we see certain reactions and overreactions. Have you really got on your knees to seek the truth of how God sees those people? Homosexuality, how God sees those people. You know he died for homosexuals as well as for you? Um, when we see our brothers and sisters and they're annoying us or irritating us, well, what's the truth there? What's really going on? Are we missing the forest for the trees? We condemn a brother or sister because they've done this one little thing, but you wouldn't have a clue about the context behind that. You've just gone, that annoyed me, but I'm going to go and deal with that because I'm a Christian brother or sister. Really? Is, are you, are you, are you, have you really sought truth? Have you really taken that to God and gone, you know, I need to pray about this first. Or maybe I'm, I'm genuinely concerned about my brother and sister, but have you taken it to the Lord to seek truth? Or do you 
condemn like these condemned by distorting, embellishing or ignoring what's really going on. So what is truth? Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asks. That question used to infuriate me in the Bible. I don't know if you ever watch those movies where you know the superhero has awesome power, but for some reason maybe kryptonite's affecting them or, um, and they can't, you know, they're getting beat up by Lex Luthor. I'm talking about Superman there, obviously, but you just think, come on. And, and, the, and the villains are kind of gloating. And you just know this isn't right. It's unjust. And you just wish that superpower had come back so it could be unleashed. This is, this is a sense that I get here, and that's what used to matter. It's like, here is Jesus, son of God, son of man, ultimate power. And you're just going, come on, Jesus, unleash. Unleash with, those, for that, with that cutting wisdom that just cut, us, cut into those political leaders in the past, those Jewish leaders, the, the Jewish Pharisees and so forth. Come on, just unleash now. Give us something brilliant. What do you notice in the text? Does he say anything? Does that disappoint you? It used to disappoint me. Because Jesus, without sounding like a cringy Christian song, he is my superhero. Well, he's like, you know, whatever superhero you have, like times a trillion, probably start getting close maybe to who God is, to who Jesus is, right? And Pilate just says, what is truth? And he gets away with it. He walks out and shortly thereafter, boom, you're crucified. Off you go. He says nothing. And it's him. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. I'm actually now very satisfied with this verse. I really like this verse. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible. It's not in, any, not, it's not in any other Gospels, by the way. It's only in John. You know why I'm happy about it now? Because truth is not just a set of political facts that you hold up like a yardstick. It's not just a set of intellectual facts that you hold up like a yardstick to reality. It's not just an ideological or any other type of system. Truth, oh, thank you. I'm okay. Um, truth is, I was building up to something. I feel like I need to go back and build. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, this, this is so special to me because truth is this. It is God who becomes a man. We call him Jesus. He is described by John as the ultimate word. Now think about that, the logos, the word, the expression. Everything Jesus did was a word without even opening his mouth many times. He spoke, of course, but when he served, when he loved, when he taught, when he is before Pilate, it is truth. Magnificent truth. And he is in that moment saying more without saying anything than all the holy books ever written have said, than all the political books, than all the scientific, philosophical ideologies that are out there. As he is already beaten up, bleeding onto Gabbatha, onto the stone pavement, he is saying more than any true system has ever said. And if you were there, 
If you were there, you would be seeing truth, quintessential truth, pure truth. You would be seeing Jesus, the Word. And so when, Jesus, when Pilate says, what is truth? Again, it is dripping with irony. It's there, Pilate. And it's not an it, it's a him. It's a person. Imagine it. There is no other truth like that. A person. What a truth. What a picture. What a saviour. What a God. You know, one day, the political powers, as I alluded to before, the religious powers, the ideological powers of this world, of this system, will bend the knee to that, this, this same person who was bloodied on that stone pavement. And all of them who, I, I do believe, have tried to seek at least sometimes for truth, will see it, and they'll just be... You know, I often think we get judgment wrong. Uh, you know, like when we think of judgment, and I don't, I don't know if we get it perfect, but when we think about judgment before God, I think we often think, oh, yeah, he's going to be, you know, looking at all my sin and my sin's going to be coming out. And I definitely think that's a part of it. It's going to be visible. But do you know what I think is really going to condemn us? When we see the loveliness of our Lord Jesus, when we see the loveliness of who God is, when we see the magnificence of who God is, when we see the the beauty of who he is, when we see his justness, when we see his love, when we see his glory, it's just going to be, whoa. It's going to be so beautiful, but also if we are without the Lord, it will be so convicting. I got you wrong. I got truth wrong. How will truth triumph then through all these world systems? It already has. Any person, anyone caught up in a political system, a religious system, a philosophical system, a way of thinking can right now bend the knee, right now say, Lord, I need you. Right now, Jesus, help me. And they will be saved. They will see truth triumph. For us as Christians, if we are caught up in certain ways of thinking, there is redemption for us as well right now, today, tomorrow. And I pray that the Lord will convict you of those destructive types of ideologies that are pulling you away from your Lord or causing you to see him as something as, as less than what he is. And as we approach the communion table, I really want you to think, here is truth. And what does the bread represent? It represents him, Logos, the word, Jesus, bleeding on the stone pavement body broken. That's truth. Jesus, whose blood would be spilt on the cross, and then Jesus, who would bust out of the tomb. That's truth. So I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to come to the table. We'll, again, we'll keep the cup, and we'll drink the cup together. So let me just pray to finish off. Oh, Father, thank you. All who are on the side of truth, Listen to you. I don't really want to listen to myself many times, Lord. Some of the words that come out of my mouth, I just wonder where they came from. But today, Lord, whatever words are from you, may they resonate. May they be a seed that is planted deep in our hearts. 
to let us know you, how lovely you are, how wonderful you are. Father, help us. May you speak to our hearts in this time as we approach the communion table. Help us to see truth, to see you. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.